Please open in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, the New Testament. We're beginning our series on Mark's Gospel, which will run throughout the summer and into the fall. And today, uh, we're beginning that series in chapter 1, the Gospel of Mark. If you're new to the Bible, we're glad you're along this morning. Mark is found in the New Testament, which is the second half of your Bible, uh, Matthew, Mark, followed by Luke and John. So it's the second book of the New Testament. You can locate that order in your table of contents or just put it in your search engine of Bible Gateway or your Bible app if you're using that. That's what we make available if you're streaming with us in the frame there, the link to Bible Gateway. Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. I mentioned William's experience uh, this weekend in Normandy, France. We had another experience of the importance of a backstory in getting to know a person uh, recently at our Trinity Fellowship Church Summit uh, two weeks ago. We were seated at a table, it was lunchtime, with uh, four couples, I believe it was, from Christ Church South Philly. Jeff Betcher, who spoke last summer at one of our men's gatherings, is uh, a pastor there. And so we were with uh, his team, and uh, we were just asking them about their lives. And in the course of that interaction, one of them um, asked Linda, or Linda, I should say, asked a follow-up question regarding a particular restaurant that is near where their church meets. It's a restaurant in South Philadelphia that, uh, if you can imagine that, is not only known for its gourmet Italian cuisine, but the waiters and waitresses and bus staff, the uh, hostess or host, um, the manager, they are all opera singers. And so when you are waited on by them, they sing to you their instructions. And you are allowed to request certain songs, there's a list there, that while you're being served that evening, they can serenade you with. And it's, I, I don't really, I, I'm not very familiar with the opera genre, that's probably as close as I wanna get to it, but it was legitimate opera for an hour and a half or two hours. We're at a very popular restaurant in South Philadelphia. Linda asked about that restaurant and everyone at the table was surprised that she had some experience with it. And she then followed up their surprise with a question about the garment district, which is near where they are in a particular fabric store that she would frequent when she was working downtown in Philadelphia. And before you know it, the entire conversation of the lunch had flipped from us asking them questions to they wanted to know how Linda Evans, who is here with you, has such knowledge of South Philadelphia. And she you know, volunteered to them since they didn't know her. I, I used to work there. I grew up there. I went to school there. And followed the, and a relationship form simply by sharing 
her backstory. They were talking for now the lunch, but they talked probably for the, the rest of that afternoon about different things about Philadelphia and growing up there. And we have in Mark's gospel the backstory of Jesus Christ. And it has been given to us and given to the church and given to people because Christ is pursuing a relationship with you and pursuing a relationship with me. And he is relentless in that pursuit. And so as we read Mark's chapter one, the beginning of the gospel, that's literally words from the gospel of Mark we read. Consider, if you will, how what we read here reveals Christ's pursuit of you that you would follow and pursue him too. This is God's word. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make its paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. Verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, 
casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets, and immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is God's word. Thanks be to him for it. Let's pray. Lord, as we begin our journey in Mark's gospel, we pray whether these words be familiar to us or they are strange and unfamiliar and and therefore new, that you would do what only you can do, and that is reveal Christ through your word, by your spirit, to our minds and hearts again. And in your pursuit of us, Lord, I pray we would hear again the precious call to follow you through the relationship you create for us through faith in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The gospel of Mark reveals Jesus Christ and his pursuit of you that you would follow him or pursue him too. And I base that on where we ended our passage. Those men had met Jesus before. John Gospel records that. They're working. They're hardworking fishermen. That's their profession. Yet it's he who is pursuing them and calling them to follow him again. So whatever else we say about this passage, I want to encourage you that the reason God in his providence, timing, has brought you to the gospel of Mark is to assure you and remind you that he is still pursuing you, whether it's your birthday or whether you're brand new as a follower in Jesus. And he does that through the revelation of his son in pages of sacred scripture. A couple of introductory notes and then uh, we're going to jump right into the text. And the best we can do in the time that remains in the spirit of the potluck is give you tastings. I invite you to linger in Mark's gospel this summer. To push away the familiarity of these words and drive more deeply, delve more deeply, pause and reflect more deeply on these pages. Because Mark, in his economy of speech, strategically and intentionally emphasizes particular moments in Jesus's earthly ministry for our, not benefit only, but 
so that we would even more follow him. It's customary when we begin a new series to give a little, and I mean little, background so that you and I are armed with enough information to not simply read this from the perspective of how is this relevant to me. It is relevant to you, but that can never be the starting point. We have to, we have to work a little bit to determine how is this relevant to the original recipients, and then through them work our way to Christ. Scholars report that this gospel was written in the 5th or 6th century after, in other words, 50 or 60 A.D. So 20 or more years has passed since Jesus' ascension and Pentecost. Churches have been planted. Paul's apostolic ministry is in full tilt. Letters have been written. Galatians and 1 Thessalonians have been published and are circulating, if not more. And Mark, scholars report, John Mark, a Christian scribe, is in Rome. He's in Rome. It's plausible. And there in Rome with him is Peter, the apostle, the disciple, who's mentioned twice here in the opening chapter and is the last disciple mentioned at the end of Mark. If nothing else, this is Peter's testimonies, if you will, that Mark cataloged about the ministry of Jesus. And yet, the use of the word gospel, three times you read it, it's not used that way in Luke. It's not used that way in John. It's not used that way in Matthew. Who uses this word in the original and in these translations that way? Paul does. It's as if Mark, in writing this gospel had Peter for his sources, but had Paul as his theological editor, because the word gospel that is used in these pages, which is used a lot, is literally word for word how Paul renders it in his letter to the Galatians, or the opening chapter of Philippians. And when you see parallels like that, that backstory it indicates that this gospel may, may have been published for the intent of circulating among these churches that Paul and Peter planted as they were building through Christ the kingdom of God and through their letters to provide a backstory to the teaching their epistles. Imagine that. Imagine receiving the letter to the Romans and having this first gospel, this earliest gospel written to explain the whys of the what's of Paul's magnificent epistle. Something to consider. For us, it's simple enough to say, my first point is the gospel of Mark is the story of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we see that in the first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The heading you see there above that, John the Baptist prepares the way, that's not original, so it's not inspired. The label you see above that, the Gospel of Mark, that's not original, that was put there by your English editors. But this first verse, that is, and most likely, it's the title of the entire 
story. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The gospel, Mark is going to be telling, the story that he's going to be unfolding is the story of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus, as we were told in our reading, right, comes from Nazareth. That's his earthly name. But Christ, that's his title. That's not a last name. That's his title. He's the promised Messiah. He's the Davidic king that scripture speaks of. He's, and to use Western language, he's the savior. God promised from our sins. And he's the son of God. As Mark begins to tell the story, as he begins to narrate the beginning of the gospel, he tells you and I what this story is about. It's the true story about Jesus, the Son of God. It's as if he wants to answer the question for his original readers and for us, who is this individual from Nazareth, a town that is not mentioned in the Old Testament? Who is this obscure individual who arrives on the scene from Nazareth? Who is he? What is his identity? Why is he important? The gospel tells the story about Jesus, Christ, the Son of God. And it begins, verse 2, second point, Jim, like Mark, we're doing these immediately. The beginning of the gospel begins with John's baptism in the wilderness. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, and he quotes Isaiah 40, Behold, I send my messenger before your face to prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem. We're going out to him and being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. The gospel, according to Mark, does not begin with Jesus. The gospel story begins with John. With the arrival of a prophet heralded by Isaiah, In verses 2 and 3, foretold 700 years before John's baptism there in the Jordan would occur. In fulfillment of an Old Testament promise God made known to Isaiah and other prophets, Mark roots the arrival of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, With the arrival of John the Baptist in fulfillment of the plan and purpose of God as revealed in the Old Testament. And just to make the point, in the beginning, the beginning, right? John's gospel hasn't been read yet. There haven't been any Christmas services. Those verses aren't yet known. In the beginning, Mark's readers, some of them were Jewish. They would have heard, wait. We've, we've heard that before. In the beginning, the beginning, 
the beginning of Genesis, Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the beginning of the echo, the echo of of God's activity in human history at the creation of everything, and now the fulfillment of the echo of Isaiah's prophecy with with the arrival of John. Mark is telling his readers the age of the gospel has begun. To quote David Crowder, get ready. Get ready. Are you ready? And just to be clear, John's call to the Jewish people to be baptized in the wilderness, this is not taking place in the temple precincts, this is not taking place in Jerusalem, this is out in the desert in the Jordan calling Jewish people to confess their sins and be baptized in the river as a symbolic statement of their sincerity that they have sinned against Yahweh. They're living in sin before Yahweh. They need forgiveness from God. What sweet assurance John the Baptist gives to them. He preaches a baptism for the forgiveness of sin. Ah! Such assurance from God, even through this prophet who seems somewhat rugged of his grace. But John required them to be baptized in unheard of practice by people who already believed they were God's chosen people. Unless God, through John, was calling them to turn back to him again. And of course, the location, details always matter in John's gospel because he's, he's not a man of many words. In the wilderness, it was repeated so many times. Even someone who's tired on Memorial Day weekend would have to pause and say, in the wilderness, in the wilderness. John's location was in the wilderness. Jesus' baptism will be in the wilderness. It, Perhaps it's a simple reminder, a rehearsal through their enactment that it was in the wilderness that Israel disobeyed the Lord, right? First through the golden calf incident, which we looked at carefully in Exodus, but then in a book like Numbers where they disobeyed God and wouldn't enter the promised land and wandered in the wilderness for for a generation or so until that generation had died and and God through his mercy and promises moved another generation through Joshua's leaders. In the wilderness, God meets them through John's bath. In the wilderness, Christ is baptized. And yet the point is not about John, is it, right? His message, verse 7, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop in a tie. After me he comes, one mightier than I. Such familiar language. I can sometimes miss entirely what he's saying. He's humble. I've been told that by pastors, and I read that. And he's, he's pointing to Jesus, who's mightier than I. Jesus is coming to baptize with the Spirit, with, 
with the spirit, which in the Old Testament belongs to God himself. But he says, whose sandals I'm unworthy to untie. Jesus said of this man, he's the greatest prophet of old for what he said about me. But he says, John of himself, I can't even untie his sandals in Jewish custom. Only a Gentile slave was permitted in a Jewish household to remove the sandals and wash the feet of a Jewish man. Humbles me, doesn't it? Humbles you, too, to think that apart from grace, apart from Christ, apart from grace given us through Christ, no one, no one, not even a faithful Christian, is worthy, worthy to wait on Christ apart from what he does for you and I on Calvary and his triumphal resurrection. But John, like a flashing neon sign, is pointing to him, preparing Israel and us for him, saying, I'm not the one, he's the one that's mightier than I. He comes bringing with him the blessed spirit because the gospel is about Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And the beginning of the gospel begins with... So here's my first application point. I invite you to join me in this. Approach Mark's gospel, even if it's familiar to you, with the requisite humility of John the Baptist. Approach it humbly. You don't know it all. I certainly don't. And more importantly, John's gospel is give, Mark's gospel is given to reveal Christ to us, not simply to affirm our knowledge. So to receive, even by faith, what he is saying through these pages, familiar or not, is going to require humility, which John models for us. But the goal is not humility and stuff. It's to behold Jesus. God's pointing you to Jesus. That's what he was accomplishing this week as we gathered in prayer. He was answering prayers, but ultimately he was pointing us to Jesus. This church exists to point to Jesus. My life and yours exists. This gospel, perfectly timed, points us to what he is doing. Third point, I hope you'll join me in that journey as we behold Christ's beauty and glory with fresh eyes. The voice heard from heaven at Jesus' baptism confirms his unique identity as God's son, verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you, I am well pleased. Each day in this classroom, I'm privileged to steward presently, we are addressed by a fellow student through what are called morning announcements. Do you remember this from your school experience? And it's probably the one part in the day where I will give some latitude to the students to tune it out because the people who read the announcements 
are boring and have about as much enthusiasm as a dust mole. They just rattle, but not this past Friday. They brought in a freshman young lady who's, I guess, trying out for the starting role next year. And she delivered the Pledge of Allegiance and three announcements where we kept standing after we'd done the pledge. I'm not overstating this. She, it was like, these are important updates that KP, you need to be. These are massive, glorious announcements right here in our pages of gospel. But guess what? The people who were there when it happened didn't realize it. They didn't hear it. They didn't see it. Do we hear it? Do we see it? The gospel is here to give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to treasure. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But don't note, don't miss the detail in verse 9. In these days, Jesus came from Nazareth. Again, John isn't expecting anything from Nazareth. John's not seeing this obscure figure with the crowd. Jesus coming saying, there he is. There's the one mightier than I who's going to bestow the spirit of the new covenant. There he is. John's not expecting this. Later, John in prison will even question, is this the Messiah? Just like his disciples did throughout his ministry. But the Father and the Spirit make it very clear to Jesus as he submits to the baptism of repentance that you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And heaven is torn open. The Spirit descends and rests upon him. You can hear the echoes of Old Testament images and and category. Psalm 2, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Psalm 2, verse 6 and 7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son today. I have begotten you. Isaiah 42, 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. And the rending of heavens, Isaiah 64, 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens. And co- Jesus comes up out of the waters of baptism and he sees heaven rent and the spirit, the mighty spirit coming down. On the one and only Son, God is acting. God is at work. Perhaps the original readers were recalling echoes of Exodus when heavens were rent and red seas were parted, when glory came down and filled the tabernacle and dwelt among them. Perhaps, perhaps they were seeing that or believing that, but Nevertheless, a new age has dawned. A new exodus, perhaps, is underway. This is what Jesus sees. This is what Jesus hears. 
but perhaps most meaningful to us. Did you see? He submitted himself to a baptism of repentance when he is sinless. I'm sure you saw that. He submitted himself to a baptism of repentance when he has perfectly obeyed the Father's will. He's innocent. He's guiltless. He's without blemish. And he's submitting himself to a baptism of sinners to say, this is why I'm here, to identify with sinners like me, to represent you, to be your savior. He doesn't need to be baptized in the sense that these people needed to be baptized. He willingly submits to it and identifies himself as our mediator. Amen? Now, if I'm him, I'm like the Celtics last night with 0.3 seconds to go and the guy puts it in and he runs around the court with a victory lap. I've just been told by the Father, I'm beloved. I'm running around Judea getting the high fives. I'm here. I've got a reception in the Crossway lobby and we're not just serving coffee, we're serving non-alcoholic champagne, whatever. We're having a party. That's the American way of Christianity. We do that. And what does the Spirit do immediately? Leads him into the wilderness immediately for testing, for trial, for alone, loneliness, suffering. In a, in, a, in a titanic battle, although he's so much bigger. But nonetheless, Satan is there accusing him and seeking to, to distort his identity as God's son and, and cause him to compromise in order to, in some way, undermine his mission. And just that strange comment about those wild animals. I mean, those aren't the, you know, the wild animals in your backyards. Wild animals in the Old Testament are always the a symbol of, of evil is present. He's confronting evil. David described his enemies who were seeking to destroy his life as, as wild animals. He's there in the wilderness, the same wilderness that Israel was tested and failed to obey God. He's there in the same wilderness being tested and confronted with evil. And he triumphs as our representative. Amen? The temptation of Christ is not primarily a passage in your Bible to teach you how to battle temptation unless you have evil wild animals. It's not. It's about him. We're in the story, but it's about him triumphing over God's enemies and ours so that we we can receive the victory. He wins. He submitted to the Father's will, not only at his baptism, but in his testing and triumph. He obeys the Father's commands and his identity as God's son is vindicated, and now he begins his ministry. Verse 14, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. 
repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. The first announcement of the gospel by our Savior is immediately followed by the effect of the gospel on four of his disciples. And without diminishing their unique role in history as Jesus' first disciple, this is where we close our message. He announces that God is at hand in me, through me, calling, calling sinners like me and you to repent and believe the gospel, to have a change of mind and therefore a new, new orientation and heart towards Jesus, not only the, the one from Nazareth, but he is the promised Christ, the Savior, the deliverer from our sins. This is the first step that he is making towards his, his crucifixion on Calvary. And as he announces, the time is now, the time is fulfilled, promises are being fulfilled, God is at hand, believe in the gospel. He pursues four fishermen whom he's already met, four fishermen who have already encountered him, four fishermen, and calls them to follow him. The announcement by Christ that the kingdom of God is at hand, that the time is fulfilled, my last point, Jim declares, he is still pursuing us. He is still calling us. He pursues and calls us to follow him. I end with this. I recently had the privilege to talk to someone about the Lord. They knew I was a Christian. They knew I was a pastor. And I began to talk to this individual about the Lord, and I led by saying that, you know, I've, I've been praying for you. I've been praying for you for a while. It's really humbling of you to, to now ask me. And as I began to share, this person said, oh, so-and-so already told me that. Because I always say I'm the only Christian people now. What did they tell you? Jesus loves me and died in my place and calls me to confess my sins and surrender my... Who told me that? I've never heard of this person before. You mean to tell me I've been praying for you and I mustered the courage to now share with you and somebody already got there before me? Jesus was pursuing her already. Then I think of your conversion and my story too. Why was someone talking to you? Why did someone pray for you and me too? Why did we believe it in light of who told us and who was praying for us? The person who told me the gospel had no credibility. But I believed it. Because Jesus was pursuing me too. Do you know why this is important? It would be important for them, and it's important for us too. Maybe this is our wilderness test. 
Maybe this is where we have our belief tested in this regard. Maybe this is where temptation gnaws at our, our faith a little bit. If I don't believe that Christ pursued me first and keeps pursuing me because of his grace and love, then I would be tempted to believe today that my perseverance in faith is all up to me. It's all up to me, and it's not. If I'm tempted to believe that, that yes, it wasn't sovereign grace in the spiritual sense that set me apart for that interaction and gave me a heart to incline my ears to listen, it wasn't his grace that led people to pray for me before I heard the gospel and was an enemy of God. It wasn't him first, his initiative, his relentless pursuit, his promise, his purpose, his plan. It's somehow primarily on my shoulders then when I am tempted and tested today. Even though I know the Mark's gospel, I can still conclude it's all up to me. It's up to me. Now, we have a part, yes. We're called to obey, yes. We're called to persevere. But underneath all of that, is his relentless pursuit of you. His loving, relentless, initiative-making, initiative-taking. These knuckleheads went back to fishing after they had already met Jesus, and he pursued them. Well, you are looking at knucklehead number five then. And he pursued me. And he has continued to pursue me. And he's relentless in his pursuit of me. Because the gospel reveals Jesus Christ. And his pursuit of you. That we would pursue him too. We were pursuing God this week in our week of prayer. But behind all that pursuit, there was one pursuing you. And if you weren't at prayer... You're trying to be a Christian at work. You're trying to live like Christ would live. He's pursuing you there. Or I know people that have de-churched or de-whatever, constructed or de- Christ is pursuing them. They need grace. They need truth. But he's still pursuing them. Because the gospel reveals Jesus Christ and his never-ending pursuit of us that we would pursue him too. Because the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, calls us to recognize our need for him. And in recognizing our need, become more acquainted with his words and his ways in the precious gospel of Mark. That's why God has you here. That's why God will lead us. There is no announcement quite like this. The announcement of what God has done for people like you and me in the provision of Jesus Christ in his life, substitutionary death, triumphant resurrection, ascension, and promised return means he is still pursuing us that we would pursue him too. Let's pray. Lord, we want... Mark's words to shape the reading of the rest of 
this gospel and we want the particular truths we will encounter that point to Christ to make us more familiar with him again. But ultimately, Lord, to read our story in light of him. Lord, we say at the beginning of of this series that we want to become more acquainted with Jesus this summer. And becoming more acquainted with you, Lord, we pray that we would discover and be amazed, but also respond of how you continue to pursue us. But I pray too, Lord, that you would also make us fishers of men. Jesus not only called these individuals to follow him, but he promised, I will make you fishers of men. As we become assured of your love through the pages of scriptures, we become convinced that your pursuit of us, Lord, is relentless. As we become convicted of sin that we're replaced other people or purposes or priorities before you, as we become, Lord, aware of you, make us more fishers of men. That like John the Baptist, we might be a neon sign in their lives. Point not to us. Point to one mightier than us. The one who has the power to baptize them with the Holy Spirit through the new birth. The indwelling of the Spirit and the forgiveness of sins that comes through repenting and believing that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the beginning of our relationship with him. Help us do that, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Let's stand.